0: From Nebraska to Pennsylvania, North Carolina to California, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, healthcare costs continue to spiral upward. Giving individuals more healthcare options is one way to contain costs. Dr. Chad Savage of Your Choice Direct Care is here for a discussion. The nation has once again hit its debt ceiling, and negotiations between the president and Congress are underway to find a way forward. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. As remote work becomes more common, the tax implications of working from home are becoming more complex. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine talks with Andrew Wilford from the National Taxpayers Union Foundation. And using the Democratic Party as a Trojan horse, socialists are gaining seats in Congress. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College has this week's American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal care costs are rising and consumer satisfaction with the nation's healthcare care system is declining. Government regulation is causing both, so has the time come to give patients more options and control over their own care. Here to discuss the issue is Dr. Chad Savage, who is founder of Your Choice Direct Care. Chad welcome to American Radio Journal. Doctor, as you look at the current state of the healthcare system in America, obviously there are a lot of problems. It's becoming more and more expensive. Give us your thoughts, an overview of the current state of healthcare in America.
1: I don't think I'm going to be surprising anyone when I say it's actually abysmal. And you could say it's coding if you were going to use the medical terminology. The unfortunate truth is is the medical care in the United States is outrageously overpriced and the quality of the care is dropping, and a lot of that's because of how we've designed the system. We've excessively centralized the control of the healthcare system, putting, putting the control and decision-making into the hands of the government and insurance companies, and by doing so through the excessive centralization of that decision-making, we've dehumanized the patient within the medical transaction and we've deconsumerized the healthcare system, meaning that basically any price can go.
0: Looking back over what Congress has done in the last couple of decades, of course, we've had the so-called Affordable Care Act, et cetera. Has this in any way cut down on the bureaucracy or has it made the problem even worse?
1: Oh, it's massively increased it. I mean, the problem started back in 1942 when there was something called the Stabilization Act, which not to go into too many of the details, but basically linked employment and insurance. And that created a lot of perturbation of the normal market forces that were within healthcare and started exploding the prices. Well, then the government in response to that in 65 created Medicare and Medicaid, which though popular, actually it also further exacerbated that price expansion. And with every additional additional law that came on the books, the government was trying to make up for the unintended consequences of the prior laws. And one of the more recent iterations of that is Obamacare, ACA. And just to put that into context, I've been practicing for about 20 years. So I've had the mixed blessing and curse of seeing a lot of the changes that have occurred under that policy. But in the 2000s, if I wanted to get someone in to see a specialist or have a procedure, largely I could have that done within a day or two. Now it's taking upwards of six months to get in to see specialists like rheumatologists in three months to get a colonoscopy, not just for screening purposes, but in someone who really needs it. A lot of that was made worse by the pandemic, but don't get me wrong, that absolutely preceded the pandemic and was made worse with Obamacare. And, And that's actually borne out by the numbers. Gallup actually did a survey in 2008 of patients and they found that 87% of patients were actually satisfied with their medical care. Uh, well, the Barrel Institution in 2022 did another study and that is now our survey that has now dropped to 40%. So it's more than cut in half since the advent of the ACA Obamacare and and just like you said, it's because of additional layers of bureaucracy. The doctors are going faster than ever. The costs are higher than ever, and basically we're we're becoming more and more. Uh, like an assembly line. And shocker of all shockers, patients don't like feeling like widgets going down an assembly line.
0: One of the stated goals was to try to get insurance companies out from between the doctor-patient relationship. In the aftermath of ACA, doctor, what's been happening with the insurance companies? Are they playing less of a role, more of a role?
1: It's funny because if you listen to them, they'll say that this has been a horrible thing for them and they'll poor mouth it, but all you need to do is go to the stock exchange to see if the truth of that. United Healthcare, which is a publicly traded company, went up something like 1,200% in the decade following the introduction of Obamacare. So this was a veritable windfall for for them. And unfortunately, one of the reasons you get the double talk for them on one side, they're saying they're trying to cut costs, but yet the prices continue to skyrocket. Is there are bizarre policies within ACA that incentivize higher costs. There's something called medical loss ratio, which means the company, the insurance company can keep only 20% of the premium for their own costs. Now, that seems superficially like a great idea, preventing them from extravagant confiscation of that premium cost, taking 40% for their own costs or something of that sort. But what it actually does is disincentivize them from saving money so, for example, if you have a premium cost of a million dollars, they can only take $200,000 because it's an 80-20. They can keep 20% of that premium for themselves. They can keep $200,000 for their own expenditures. If some remarkable cost-saving modality came to health care and decreased the, the cost of, of medical care and that premium to, to $100,000, now they're only able to keep $20,000 for themselves, which was effectively put them out of business.
0: One of the solutions to this is to give patients more choice, more flexibility in their own health care. And there's something called the personal option, which goes a long way toward achieving that goal. Explain to us what the personal option is and how it works.
1: Certainly. So it's trying to take that centralized authority that I described and give it back to the patient where it should rightfully be, which is why they call it personalized. And basically, it's trying to combine transparency, transparency, with agency. And what I mean by that, it's knowing what prices are and having the ability to do something about that. So there's a lot of ways around that uh, to try to figure that out. But one of the current mechanisms that already exists in our healthcare system that could easily be used to, to do this are something called HSAs or health savings accounts. And those are accounts where people can put pre-tax money into an account and then use it for medical expenses. And if, if the current HSA rules are, are liberalized a little bit to allow those dollars to go towards, premium costs to direct primary care like what I practice, which is an innovative free market primary care model, those patients will now control the dollars that they themselves earned, and they'll be able to to shop around and obtain the the quality of doctor that they know is best for them at the price that they know that they can
0: afford. You mentioned the term free market public health care. What do you mean by that?
1: free market is essentially a feedback system. you know. As everybody knows, you, you can't sell a, a product at a price higher than people are willing to pay for it. So we need those free market forces back in healthcare. And using HSAs, their health savings account, which which are patient-controlled funds, allows them to control the dollars that they themselves contribute to their own healthcare instead of going through the myriad bureaucracies that currently not only control your healthcare, but take a large chunk of the dollars that you originally contributed For your own care.
0: We have been talking with Dr. Chad Savage. He is founder of Your Choice Direct Care. And Dr. Savage, could you give us a website where folks can go? I know you have some videos and other information that folks might be able to access to learn a bit more.
1: They can go to yourchoicedirectcare.com, which is my practice's website. And even if they're not interested in my own practice because of proximity reasons, there are some videos up there explaining how to combine less expensive coverage products with much better, less expensive care like direct primary care. And if people are interested in finding practices in their area that practice a similar philosophy after looking at my website, feel free to go to dpcfrontier.com, which has a mapper feature and allows uh, patients to find Similar practices in their area.
0: Dr. Chad Savage of Your Choice Direct Care. Doctor, thank you for taking time to be with us. Thank you, Loman. We go now to the offices of the Club for Growth in Washington, D.C., where Scott Parkinson is standing by. Scott, thank you for being here. It's great to be with you, Loman. The big issue in Washington, D.C. these days, although there are many, happens to center around the national debt, the fact that the nation has once again hit its debt ceiling. There's a lot of discussion as to what or how to proceed here going forward. Scott, there are some big developments this past week with Kevin McCarthy and the president. Can you fill us in?
2: Yeah, well, this week, Speaker McCarthy and President Biden had their first one-on-one meeting at the White House to begin the discussions on how we're going to handle the debt crisis in America. And Kevin McCarthy emerged from that meeting feeling pretty optimistic that we can actually come to an agreement. He was crystal clear that Congress is not going to pass what's known as a clean debt ceiling bill. And what that means is Congress isn't going to just increase the limit without having any fiscal reforms or pro growth reforms attached to it. The debt limit is really a mechanism that's in place so that when you hit the limit, Congress reevaluates basically our fiscal posture and and how we got to where we are. And we know right now we're at thirty one point four trillion dollars of national debt and that number it has been increasing at a a rapid pace in recent years. It was only about $10 trillion at the end of the Bush administration. And so in less than a generation, we've taken on more debt than uh, you could really imagine. And what is that big number? $31.4 trillion. We've talked about this, I think, before. It's about $90,000 per American and about $240,000 per American household. And when you think about that burden on the American people and what that does for our financial markets, what it does for inflation, what it does to increase costs for, for the servicing of our debt payments, what's known as the net interest payments, that eats away at all the other necessary federal outlays, uh, federal spending that you know the American people really expect. And pretty soon it's going to be crunching down on On our national security budget, it's going to be crunching down on all the non-defense areas of the federal government that require federal spending. And so when when lawmakers feel that pinch, they start to come to the table and negotiate. So I think that's really the big positive out of the meeting this week with Joe Biden. They are going to have to negotiate with the House Republicans and Speaker McCarthy to end the debt crisis, end big government, and end these trillion-dollar deficits. I think that ending the woke and weaponized bureaucracy in the federal government is a good start, and there's a lot of really radical ideas that have been brought forward through executive actions and orders.
0: As we look at this ever-mounting debt here, Scott, of course, this past week, the Federal Reserve once again did an interest rate hike. They're trying to bring inflation, which has come down a bit, but still almost at historic high levels and out of control. What role does all this additional debt play in fueling that inflation that the Fed and others are trying to fight?
2: Yeah, the bottom line is Congress has been printing money, and we printed a ton of money during the the COVID emergency. Thankfully, uh, this week, the House voted... To end that COVID 19 uh, emergency declaration, they also voted to end teleworking for employees at federal agencies and you know, there's a lot of ways I think we can kind of move forward. President Biden has said that he wanted to end the emergency declaration in May, but there's no real reason to say that the pandemic is over and keep this emergency declaration in place other than to continue to spend that, um, that money that was pushed forward through the emergency declaration. So we hope that part of the debt limit negotiation will be to claw back that money, and that will also tamper down this inflationary effect that we've been feeling really for the the past two years. It's been a big pinch on the American people, and I think we talked about it recently. If you can just imagine one month of your salary being wiped out by the actions of the federal government, that's what's happened.
0: Switching now to politics, of course, a third of the United States Senate will be up for election coming up here in 2024, and one of those seats that's going to be particularly interesting is in the state of Indiana. I understand there have been some major developments there this past week.
2: Last month, the Club for Growth PAC endorsed Congressman Jim Banks for the Indiana Senate race. This race is an open seat because the current senator, Mike Braun, is running for governor, And so there's been a lot of political chatter throughout Indiana, throughout the D.C. area on who else is going to run against Jim Banks. We learned earlier this week that former Governor Mitch Daniels is not going to run, and that created uh, sort of a a big, swift momentum push toward Jim Banks. This week we saw the National Republican Senatorial Committee announce that Jim Banks is their preferred candidate and that they're supporting him and that he's actually one of their top recruits on the cycle. And then we also uh, learned that President Trump has given his complete and total endorsement to Jim Banks. So that's a, a really, really good thing as we think about what could otherwise be an expensive Republican primary is now shaping up to be something more like when Tom Cotton was elected in Arkansas. I think Jim Banks is now effectively a shoe-in to win this race, and we can direct precious resources towards other United
0: States Senate races throughout the country to try to win back that Republican majority. And taking a look at all these other opportunities around the country, it is a target-rich environment for Republicans this cycle, is it not?
2: Yeah, I think that there are probably about 11, 12 pickup opportunities throughout the country. You know, obviously some are are better pickup opportunities than others. We're going to see some folks announce retirements. You're going to see other folks decide that their re-election campaign is is on sort of a lifeline, and, and they need to do everything that they can to win re-election. So the competition between uh, folks in Montana against John Tester or folks in West Virginia against Joe Manchin, and Kirsten Cinema gave up her Democratic card, and uh, she's an independent now. So there's another congressman from Arizona that's looking at running there. And then Democrats are also going to have a big, big race in California that will uh, take up a lot of their their resources. Um, We've got several members of the congressional delegation in California that are, are looking at running there, including Katie Porter and Congresswoman Lee, and then also Adam Schiff, who
0: obviously lied to the American people. Conversely, as we look at the Republican seats that are going to be on the ballot next year, doesn't seem like any of those seats are particularly a jeopardy, does it?
2: I don't think any are in jeopardy. This is still going to be a presidential cycle. There's going to be some close races, but we feel really good about Senator Ted Cruz winning his reelection and also Senator Rick Scott winning his reelection in Florida. Those are our two very, very important senators to the conservative movement,
0: and I think that we'll learn more about their races in
2: the coming months.
0: We have been talking, of course, with Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth, and Scott, tell us a little bit about the club.
2: The Club for Growth is this membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. We're united in this idea of economic freedom and liberty and opportunity. If anybody wants to check us out, the website is clubforgrowth.org. You can learn more about all the policies that we advocate for on Capitol Hill and the candidates that we support through Club for Growth PAC can also sign up to become
0: a member for free. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you again for being here. All right, thank you. Working from home became far more common during the COVID-19 pandemic, and for many workers, remote work is continuing. That has created tax complications for both employers and employees, as Eric Baim of Reason Magazine learns from Andrew Wilford of the National Taxpayers Union Foundation.
3: You know, I'm not ashamed to admit to you that I am recording this interview from home. I'm not in an office right now. I am one of the legions of people who work, at least occasionally, from home, work remotely in the economy. And there are a lot more of us now than there were before the pandemic. But not all remote work is created equally, and state policies actually have a a pretty significant influence on where remote workers may choose to live and and work, actually, where they are living. And that's what we're going to take a look at today. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us. My guest today is Andrew Wilford. He is the director of the Interstate Commerce Initiative at the National Taxpayers Union Foundation, and he's also the author of a new report that they've published just in the past week looking at uh, how state tax codes affect remote and mobile workers. And he joins us now on the program to talk about this. Andrew, thanks for taking some time with us.
4: Hi, thanks, Eric. I'm, I'm also a remote worker, so you're in good company.
3: We can do this from anywhere, it turns out. Technology is remarkable. Andrew, before we get into like the nitty gritty of this report, give us a sense of like which states are winning here. Let's just get right to the, the winners and losers here. Who's doing this well?
4: Of course, the, the states that are the easiest for remote workers to deal with from a tax perspective are the states that don't have an individual income tax. So there's, there's nine of them, so they're, they're the clear winners. Um, but beyond that, West Virginia really stands out as the state with an individual income tax that is the easiest for remote workers. It has a lot of, it has reciprocity agreements, high thresholds, which I'll get into I'm sure in a moment, and it just does everything very well. It could still improve on a few things, but does a lot of things well. The worst state is actually Delaware. Maybe not people's first thought. People's first thought might be New York, but New York comes in fourth to last, so...
3: Hey, good job, New York. Not ranking last in one of these things for the first time ever. California, too, is is ranked 40th in your report, but not dead last. So good for those two, I guess. West Virginia and Delaware, that's an interesting inversion because we tend to, in like the traditional model of what states are good for business and what states are economically successful, we think of Delaware as being a place that has all sorts of corporations. And we think of West Virginia as being, you know, maybe a little more economically depressed, not doing so well. It seems like the move towards remote work, I mean, it creates new opportunities opportunities for places like West Virginia that maybe had been falling behind in the more traditional workplace.
4: Absolutely. And I think West Virginia is really trying to capitalize on that. With this report, we tried to focus specifically on issues that affect remote and mobile workers. So we did factor in the state's individual income tax code, how, how friendly that is just to everyone. But We really wanted to focus on some things that specifically matter to remote workers. So, for example, the thresholds I mentioned. Many of your listeners might not even be aware that in the majority of states, vast majority of states that have an individual income tax, if you work just a single day there, you're expected to file an individual income tax return in that state. Most people just don't. And the state doesn't come after them for it. But there is that expectation. And, you know, if that ever started really getting enforced right now, it's mostly focused on the very wealthy and people who have high visibility in that sense. But that could come as a major surprise to people if if they really started if they really started putting the hammer down there.
3: So what sort of policies should states be looking to implement? Maybe that's one of them. If they want to get in on this boom of remote workers, they want to start attracting people who technically have jobs maybe in New York City, but don't have to be there all that often. And so they can live wherever they want. They're looking around the country. And and what are those people looking for?
4: Well, I think the big thing is you don't want to scare them away. You can set up a threshold that says until you work here, we recommend more than 30 days in the year. You don't have to file an individual income tax return. And what that does is that provides Certainty to taxpayers that they're not going to get a letter in the mail because they decided to visit some family for a few days. Another thing is reciprocity agreements. So these are basically agreements between states that say that taxpayers who commute across state lines will be treated as working in their state of residence for tax purposes. So it provides very much simplicity and security to taxpayers. They know who they have to pay taxes to. It's just one state. It's not going to be two states fighting over them. So we recommend states do more of those as well.
3: Definitely something that I can agree is beneficial. I live in Virginia, but my job is technically in Washington D.C. When I do go into the office, and so, uh, but I don't have to worry about paying D.C. taxes. Thankfully, I get to you know treat my taxes as if they're Virginia. That is uh, that is very important, as clutch for me. We're talking with Andrew Wilford. He is the director of the Interstate Commerce Initiative at the National Taxpayers Union Foundation and the author of this new report about state policies that make states more attractive to remote workers. Some states more attractive than others for remote workers. Andrew, not a lot of time left here. I just want to leave on this point. This this breakdown and the, and the study that you've done here sort of suggests that this isn't really a partisan thing. There's not like, it's not like conservative states or red states do better and, and blue states or democratic states do worse. It's kind of all over the board, which suggests this is a, a bipartisan thing that state lawmakers could look at.
4: Yeah, I, I think it definitely is. And our our third highest ranking state does have an individual income tax is Illinois. So no one's idea of a very, very red state. And then two of the Two of the worst three, other than Delaware, the other two of the worst three, other than Delaware, are Nebraska and Arkansas. So, I think you're very much correct that this is a clear red-blue divide, and I think that the idea that taxpayers shouldn't be required to to handle more burdensome tax obligations uh, just on the basis of a few days of work is is pretty is pretty bipartisan. So, I think that there's definitely. Uh, interest on both sides of the aisle. And I I hope to I hope to see that uh,
3: realized. Yeah, and a chance for some of those states, not the coastal states that have been uh, the beneficiaries of the economic boom of the last couple of decades, but a chance for other states to uh, get in on this game and attract some of these remote workers. West Virginia is doing it. Others could do the same. Andrew, thanks for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me on. And again, that is Andrew Wilford. He's director of the Interstate Commerce Initiative at the National Taxpayers Union Foundation. Check out their work online at NTU.org. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Catch up on everything we're working on at Reason.com and catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Under the guise
0: of being Democrats, more socialists have won seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. For details, we turn to Dr. Paul Kingor, from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College, who has this week's American Radio Journal commentary. America has a new Congress, with a new Speaker of the House, a new majority
5: party, and also, unfortunately, more new socialists. (laughs) The socialists hail from the group the Democratic Socialists of America, also known as the DSA, which for years now has described itself on its website as, quote, the largest socialist organization in the United States, unquote, with nearly 100,000 members, which the DSA literally refers to as its comrades. That's not overstated. And in recent years, they've been successfully electing their comrades nationwide as Democrats. The original squad of DSA members elected as Democrats included the troika of Congresswomen Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilhan Omar. The squad then picked up Congresswomen Cori Bush and Ayanna Presley. Now add to the class a couple guys, Representative Jamal Bowman from New York, and Representative Greg Caesar from Texas, plus another minority woman, Summer Lee of Pennsylvania. All three likewise came into politics through the DSA and its activism. The key to these socialist success has been a very Machiavellian electoral strategy. It was championed by the DSA and its partner, the Radical Justice Democrats, an organization co-founded by Young Turks leader Cenk Iger, Chenk five years ago, candidly explained his allies' long-term strategy. He said, quote, what we need to do is take over the Democratic Party. We're going to primary all of the established Democrats. We're going to primary all vulnerable Democrats. We want hundreds. We want to replace Congress. Iger said that if they could get into Congress a dozen or two AOCs or Omars, quote, people would freak out, unquote. In all these cases, the DSA-blessed candidates followed the same strategy. They ran in overwhelmingly Democrat districts, knowing that whichever Democrat wins the Democratic primary wins the general election in November. Once the traditional Democrat is defeated, the Socialist Democrat secures the seat with effectively no competitive Republican opposition in the November general election. This was how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez got elected in New York's 14th congressional district. With AOC as a Manchurian candidate... The Justice Democrats and DSA targeted New York's 14th District, a fully Democratic seat held for 20 years by Democratic caucus chair Joe Crowley, a 10-term incumbent. In June 2018, AOC defeated Crowley and then easily, in turn, won in November against the Republican. We'll add to the victory column Summer Lee. Lee was in a crucial congressional race in Pittsburgh to replace retiring Representative Mike Doyle, a 14-term Democrat. Summer Lee, likewise, got her start with the DSA. In 2018, she ran aggressively against Pennsylvania State Rep Paul Costa, a longtime traditional Democrat from a well-known family of Democratic politicians, and she won. More recently, Lee reportedly had a split with the Pittsburgh DSA chapter over some internal rift and is reportedly now a former DSA member. But either way, Lee remains a Democratic socialist, ideologically, which troubled many traditional Democrats in Pittsburgh's 12th district, especially Jewish voters who suspected Lee of anti-Semitism, much like with DSA member Ilhan Omar. They, in turn, urged Republicans to switch party affiliations to vote for a more traditional Democrat named Steve Irwin. All of this prompted the most competitive Democratic primary race in the area in quite some time. Irwin, in fact, almost completely erased Lee's lead. Out of over 110,000 votes cast, Lee barely won by about 700. From there, not surprisingly, Lee went on to defeat the Republican nominee in November, though the Republican actually did unusually well in this highly Democratic district, given Lee's extremism. In all, the socialists are sliding into Congress through the Trojan horse of the Democratic Party. And not just in Congress. The DSA's longer list of endorsed candidates around the country in 2022 was significant. Many of them won in landslides. Throughout America, these energetic guys and gals are rising stars in the Democratic Party. And they are committed Democratic socialists, which means John F. Kennedy and Harry Truman, ladies and gentlemen, are rolling over in their graves. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul KenGore. Thanks for listening.
0: American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WPPIFM in Topshin, Maine, WPEIFM in Saco, Maine, along with WKSPFM in Augusta, Georgia. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.